Last week, we began our series in 1 Peter. Peter's letter was written and sent to churches who had been established many years before, churches who were in what was then known as Asia Minor, what we know today as modern-day Turkey. And these are people who are living in a hostile environment. These Peter calls these people in the opening verses exiles. They are exiles living in a world that no longer belongs to them. They are living in a world that once they engaged in. They are living in a world that was pleasurable to them. They were living in a world that that drew their attention and now being transformed by Christ, the saving work of Christ, being changed by Christ. No longer are they living a life that is spiraling down towards a day of judgment, eternal judgment, a day where they will suffer for their sins. They are now living in a world that that is is new and different and a world that promises a future hope. But they are also living in a world as exiles that is hostile, hostile to their Christian faith. In 62 AD, Christianity had been around for more than 30 years. In those years, uh, many came to faith in Christ. Churches were established in many locales. The culture was impacted by them. They, they saw a difference in these Christians. And, and over time, that that impact that that change that they brought to the culture actually um, their their Christian influence was not particularly well received particularly in Rome as Caesar Nero who was is now ruling at this time is becoming a serious opponent of the Christian faith and Peter Peter who is in Rome at this time wisely discerns the growing hostility he sees towards Christians he observes it in Rome up close and personal he hears reports of it throughout Asia Minor, throughout the known world, and he knows, he knows it is only going to get worse. And so he writes, he writes to these churches who are dispersed, these exiles, these people who no longer feel comfortable in this culture, who, who are living literally between two worlds. That's, that's where these people are. And he, and he writes to them to help them to know how to live in a world that is rapidly growing more hostile to them every day. And so he writes, Peter writes to encourage these men and women to, as exiles, remain, remain firm in your faith, in the face of, of persecution. Because as we read in, in chapter 4 of, and verse 12 of First Peter, they, they were surprised. They were surprised by the fiery trials that they had seen. And so Peter wants to help them understand what is, what is happening to them. And he wants to help them understand how to live faithfully for Christ, even in the midst of difficult and hard circumstances, circumstances that create, create suffering. D. Edmund Hebert in his commentary writes this. He says, First Peter was not written to expound momentous doctrinal truths. Rather, it is a practical appear, appeal to courage, purity, and faithfulness to Christ in the midst of suffering for his name's sake. It's, it is full of that comfort which only a true Christian, rich in faith and rich in love, can give to the suffering. Peter's primary purpose was not to teach Christian doctrine, but to strengthen Christian faith. Now, don't misunderstand. There is much Christian doctrine taught in Peter's letter. 
But that wasn't his goal. He wasn't giving a lecture. He wasn't being academic. He was being pastoral. He was being fatherly. He was being, he was caring as one believer to another. And he was, he was informing these dear brothers and sisters in Christ that, that you can remain firm in the faith. And in his letter, Peter, Peter is approaching two very difficult subjects. He's tackling holiness and he's tackling suffering. And before he, he speaks to his readers about the commands of holiness, as we will read in later chapters, and the demands of, he talks about the demands of hardship for following Christ. But, but before that, he takes them to the sovereign power and the assurance of God necessary for their ability to obey his commands and endure suffering. And this, this assurance is important for all of us, all believers, to remember the assurance that we have in Christ, the assurance of his sanctifying work, the assurance of the power he gives us through his spirit to obey his commands, and the assurance that we are secure in Christ throughout all eternity. Because of what Christ has done as we are followers of him. So look with me in 1 Peter and begin in chapter 3. I mean, verse 3 of chapter 1. Peter writes this. Oh, brothers and sisters, I've been, I've been reading these three verses all week long. And they, they are so rich. I, I'm going to read them slowly. I want you to feel Peter's impact. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith, your faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Oh my. Peter's main idea is this. By, by God's great mercy, he has given us salvation and he promises to keep it secure. By God's great mercy, he has given us salvation in Christ and he promises to keep it secure. In his letter, Peter is encouraging these believers to remain faithful even in their suffering, by reminding them in these three verses that suffering, suffering is temporary in light of what is permanent. And what is permanent is what God is doing for us, giving us, has provided for us, what he will do for us according to his great mercy. Now that we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we have an inheritance. We have this inheritance that is imperishable. We have this inheritance that is undefiled. We have this inheritance that is unfading. 
And it is being guarded. It's kept in heaven for you and it's being guarded. Peter is just reminding them these are the eternal things. He is telling them that what is permanent is God is eternal. Christ is eternal. Their salvation, your salvation is eternal. Their inheritance is eternal. They are eternal. All because of God's great mercy. And so he begins with these words of praise. Blessed be the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, Lord and Savior. Blessed be the God of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is, he is extolling the God who has done all this. Again, D. Edmund Hebert says this, this beautiful passage is an outpouring of an adoring heart. It is the voice of one that prepares and encourages the suffering soul to steadfastly continue the spiritual battle. It evokes a song of praise to God amid present tests and afflictions. This opening paragraph offers an instructive blending of confident Christian hope and assurance with an open-eyed awareness of suffering for the faith characteristic of this epistle. Whenever men bless God, they declare that he in his infinite excellence is infinitely praiseworthy and express their celebration of what he is and does. Peter's voice here is one of exaltation, declaration, adoration for all that God has done through Christ. It is a heartfelt outpouring of praise for God's marvelous salvation he has done. That's what these three verses are about. Peter's, Peter's praise is, to, is, is not just ethereal, something out there. It's praise to the God he knows and the God who knows him. Praise to the God. Praise to the God who has rescued him from his sins. Rescued him and these believers, these Christians, from sin and death and judgment. He declares God's praise. He blesses God's name for no matter the circumstances he faces and no matter what lies before him, his final destination is secure in God's love and care. Brothers and sisters, this is written to us. This is written to us when, when you face that, that moment with a neighbor who, who just, just excoriates you for, for your faith in Christ, for your belief that the Bible, the Word of God is true, who, who declares that the Word of God is, is xenophobic and homophobic and, and filled with hate speech. And, and you're looking at your Bible and just like, Really? And, and you think, no, 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 this is the word of God and you stand for the word of God and, and it's in the midst of these circumstances that, that God is saying, look, praise me. Praise me. Praise me because, because what, what I've given you, that's permanent. It's eternal. And the words that you are hearing from this person or that person, they're temporary. They're temporary. No, no, no. Praise me for what is eternal. I would contend that these are some of the most encouraging and faith-filled verses in all of Scripture. Listen, if all you had, all you had were these three verses, you were, you were locked away somewhere and you had these three verses, you could live off of these three verses for the rest of your life. They would speak life to you. They would speak hope to you. They would give you strength. Peter, 
Peter is, is brilliant. These are brilliant words that help the believer find hope, strength, faith, and courage as, as we strive, as they strive to remain faithful to Christ in the midst of persecution and suffering. This is the God who has revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ, who has acted on our behalf for our salvation. And in his great mercy, he has given us new birth. Let me, the, central, the central focus of this verse, that where this verse all, all connects to, that this, the pinnacle of this verse is in verse 3, according to his great mercy. Oh, this, this, this is the exaltation of the mercy of God. <clears throat> if you go home today with only one thought from what I've shared, it should be this. God is merciful to me. God is merciful to me. That is, that is a theological truth that should ring in your heart and in your mind day in and day out. God is merciful to me. And you should grow in your awareness of God's mercy. A few weeks back when Marilyn and I were driving down to Charlotte, we wanted to listen to some music and our CD player and our car is broken and it's, it, the car is, is older than, uh, it doesn't have uh, Bluetooth capabilities. Even if it did, I wouldn't know how to connect it. But it, it doesn't have Bluetooth cap- capabilities. So, so we get in the car and we're driving and Marilyn pulls out a box of these things called cassette tapes because we have a cassette player in the car. Now, for those of you who are younger, cassette tape is this little like rectangular thing that has music on it. And they were, they were really like major hot when I was in college. You, you went from, from big 33 RPM albums to, to these little cassette tapes. And, and oh my goodness, when they came out with a Sony Walkman, that was like the world was changing. And so, so she puts in a cassette tape. And, and these cassette tapes are older than a lot of you in this room. And, and she, plugs, she plugs one in, and it's, it's, from, it's vineyard music from 1994. <clears throat> and and these, were, these were the songs we were playing when, when my kids were really young. And, and the song that comes on, the very first song that comes on, is, What a Merciful God. What a Merciful God. What a Merciful God. You are. What a merciful God. And it created in me a fresh and living reminder of how great God's mercy is. And that's what Peter wants us to learn today. So main points, three main points. A living hope, a perfect inheritance, and a secure salvation. Peter wants us to see that that God's all that God's great mercy has done for us. A, a, as born-again exiles, as exiles living in a hostile wor- world, he, he tells us of, of God's great mercy and all that it has done so that we can remain faithful and we can remain holy. Because of his great mercy, we do. We have, first of all, in verse 3, we see we have a living hope. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He has caused us to be born again. We were dead in our sins, and he has caused us to be born again. 
It's not popular in our day and age to tell somebody you are dead in your sin. Try starting that conversation sitting on a bus. Hey, did you know you're dead in your sin? Partly because people take sin as nothing. They don't take it seriously. But dead in sin, dead in sin is talking about eternal judgment, God's wrath, eternal death, eternal torment, eternity separated from God under God's judgment. And we have been born again. We have been born again to a, to a living hope. That's, that's the That's the evidence of his great mercy. We have a living hope. The salvation we have received has a present and a future aspect. Our our new life, our new life gives us a present hope because of Christ's resurrection. We've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has made us heirs of this glorious inheritance that will one day be revealed. But we've been born again to a living hope. It's living because it's continuing to grow and strengthen in our lives. That's what sanctification is. In this, in this turbulent world, listen, we Christians are justified. They're justified in viewing the future with hope, even though this world is turbulent. Why? Because we've been born again to a living hope. Amen. It is a hope that never dies. It's a hope that never ends. It's a hope that continues. And by God's salvation, he's delivered us from hopelessness. Hopelessness and given us an expectant, an expectant joy for what he has in store door in the future for all of us. In the midst of being exiles, in the midst of suffering, you have a living hope. Peter characterized Christian hope as a living hope because it's the very life of God we have in us. That, and that stands, that stands in such stark contrast to the world we live that is empty and frustrated and deceived and, and they have false hopes in many things in this world. Our hope is grounded in, in an objective reality. It is a, it's this, Jesus has risen from the dead. The resurrection. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection is the crowning point of the redemptive work of God. And it's the foundation of our our saving life, being saved in Christ. It's the foundation. Our Our hope is anchored in the past of what Christ has done. Our hope remains in the present because we have the Spirit working in us as a guarantee, a promise to to be with us, to, to strengthen us and give us hope until that final day. And then our hope is completed in the future as we read here because Jesus is coming back again. His, his resurrection is the hope and guarantee of our resurrection. Edmund Clowney said this, Christ's resurrection spells hope for us, not because, just because he lives, but because by God's great mercy, we live. We live. And Peter, Peter Davids in his commentary said this, this is important for a suffering people who may see only more pain and deprivation ahead, need to be able to pierce the dark clouds and fasten on a vision of hope if they are to stay on track. 
This hope is not a desperate holding on to a faded dream, a dead hope, but a living one founded on reality for it is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is this reality which will enable the readers to face even death without fear for death is not an end for the Christian but a beginning. The point is that while Christians may suffer in this age and so have no future here, there is waiting for the faithful a reward as sure and as real as that of Abraham, a reward far better than an earthly land and far more lasting. Brothers and sisters, Peter tells us, hey, hey, exile, you have a living hope. You have a living hope. Secondly, you have a perfect inheritance. Verse, verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Our new life gives us a present hope, grounded in Christ's resurrection for sure, and also makes us heirs of this, this special, this glorious inheritance that is yet to be revealed. An inheritance that we are waiting on. This inheritance is, is the believer's share in this heavenly kingdom we will be in one day. And we are in the kingdom of God now. But we have been born again not to obtain some family inheritance on earth, but one in the eternal city of God. As members, as members of God's family, listen, we're heirs. We're heirs, we're heirs because we have, we have the spirit of God. Ephesians 4 if I can find Ephesians 4, here we go. Ephesians 4, 1, 1, 13 through 14 says this. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Until we acquire possession of it. We have this guarantee, this promise that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee, the seal. You have an inheritance. Oh yeah. Yeah. You, you're experiencing it in some degree now, but the full inheritance is coming. All you have to do is die to get it. <laughs> is that so bad? Peter uses three adjectives that give full expression to what this inheritance is and what it and the, one, the inheritance we've received, first he says, it is imperishable. It is imperishable. It is imperishable. We will live in this place called heaven eternally, forever. It's a place, Peter says, that can never be destroyed. It's imperishable. It, it has no end. And then he says it's undefiled. It's, un, it's unsusceptible to sin. It, it can never be stained by sin or contaminated because it has the very nature of Christ. It, it will always remain free of defilement because unlike the world we live in that is contaminated with sin and like us who are defiled, our hands and hearts that are polluted, this place will never be polluted. Everyone in this world is contaminated. No one is pure. In Revelation 5, John is seeing this vision and he sees this vision of this scroll and, and he, is, he is weeping and he is sobbing because he realizes there is no one worthy to open the scroll. No one on earth has has, has, is worthy because they are all defiled. They are all polluted. And yet, 
one comes along who is worthy to open the scroll. It is the Lamb of God who's been slain. It is the Son of God. It is our Savior, Jesus Christ, who opens the scroll. That's our inheritance. Undefiled. Undefiled. The one who bore our sin, the one who died our death, the one who was our substitute, the one who sacrificed himself for us, the one who suffered, the one who had God's wrath poured upon him on our behalf because we're defiled and we're polluted. That one opened the scroll. That one gives us an inheritance that is undefiled. And then he gives us an inheritance that is unfading. It has permanent beauty. It's a flower that never wilts or fades. It will never lose its charm for Christians. Everything in this life that we live loses its beauty over time. It's the law of entropy. Everything goes from, from order to chaos. Gravity begins to take over. Gravity has begun to take over. I've been fighting gravity now for 64 years, and it's only getting worse. <laughs> And you're finding gravity too. <laughs> I fade, but Christ doesn't. I fade, but my life in Christ doesn't. I fade, but the inheritance I've been promised in Christ doesn't. This inheritance is imperishable, it is undefiled, and is unfading. And Peter tells you this, that when you are suffering, when you are out and about in family situations where family members are quite disagreeable to your Christian faith, to the way you're training your children, to the stands that you take for truth in the Word of God, Peter wants you to remember I'm not living for their approval. I'm not living for what makes me happy in this world. I'm living for what is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Our inheritance, brothers and sisters, our, our inheritance is death-proof, it is sin-proof, and it is time-proof. Its nature is free from the germs of destruction. It will always be, always be untouched by sin. And it will never fade in beauty. That is our inheritance. Listen, having never been to heaven, Peter can only describe heaven in, in negative terms. What it's not like. Oh, but one day, one day he will see what it is like. He does see now what it is like. And we will see what it is like. And, and, and these words will not be almost, they'll be inadequate for us to describe the beauty that we see in heaven. Peter closes this verse 4 with some stunning words. He says, he says, this inheritance that, that God has, has given you in Christ, in his great mercy, this inheritance, because you are born again to a living hope. Listen, I want you to know something about this inheritance that you have. God says, I, I keep it in heaven for you. It's kept in heaven. It's kept. 
in heaven. There's, it's, it's in heaven. It's, it's there. It's tangible. It's real. It's, it's kept in heaven for you. He speaks to each believer. You, personally. God, God is carefully protecting, keeping your inheritance. The inheritance, inheritance you see in part now, but will receive in full. That is being kept for you by God. And it means you will never be denied that inheritance. Peter personally assures each and every reader of these words that this inheritance, it is eternally pure. It is there. It is certain. It is certain. It is certain. And God will preserve it without fail. It is safe. Our inheritance is safe. Nothing can spoil it. It, can, it is untouched by death. It's unstained by evil. It's unimpaired by time. It's eternal, pure, beautiful. Nothing can ruin it. Nothing can change it. No one can keep you from it and nothing can keep it from you. D. Edmund Hebert finally says this, the inheritance is certain because of God's watchful care. It is immune from disasters that often befall an inheritance on earth. Its preservation in heaven adds to the assurance of safety. It is safely beyond the reach of all destructive forces. Its preservation in heaven indicates that the inheritance is not merely the believer's arrival in heaven, but all the fullness of our salvation promised to us in Christ. It assures that the trials and sufferings they were experiencing on behalf of their faith would not undermine the certainty of their coming inheritance. They would possess it in due time. That is your inheritance. Brothers and sisters, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Why? Because, because your inheritance, it is not a mansion in heaven. It is not the great feast. It is not streets of gold or any other material thing. Your inheritance is Christ himself. Get that? It's knowing Christ it's being with Christ. It's living eternally in the presence of the one who died for you and loves you. That is what is our treasure, is the Lord himself. We, we find our satisfaction in Christ. He is our treasure, safely Deposited and permanently enthroned in heaven. And, and even more so, I mean, John goes on to tell us that, that when we see him, when we see Christ at this final time, when we see Christ, we shall be like him. We shall share in his glory. That is a perfect inheritance. And then finally, a secure salvation. In verse 5, Peter, Peter closes this section with who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God's not only watching over our inheritance, he's watching over us. He's watching over you. Who by God's power are being guarded? You are being guarded by his power he is guarding you. He is watching over you through the faith that you express towards him. And it one day will fully be, re be revealed. Peter's readers, most assuredly, they, they've been anxious 
about whether or not they were going to be able to stand firm in the midst of, of trials? Would they have the courage when, when people attack them, when people just mock them and ridicule them and, and want to be hostile to them? They, they, are, they are wondering, what, what will I do in the midst of persecution? How will I stand? Will I stand? I mean, some of us have experienced some degree, some small degree of persecution, some of us a little bit more, and we wonder, what will it be like on that moment? How how will I stand? Will I stand? And Peter wants to assure them, you will stand. Why? Because God is guarding you. This promise to guard us is primarily about God working powerfully in and through our faith. See, God's power, it's a garrison, it's a fort, it's, a, it's, it's where we find our security. His, his power is, is around us, it's, it's in us. No harm can reach us with respect to our salvation and our inheritance because what, we have been promised this by the God of the universe. There is no power greater than God's power. Romans 8, 1. Listen to Romans 8, 31 through 39. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, that inheritance? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are being guarded by God's power. And Peter, Peter balances this, this, you are being guarded by God's power with, hey, he's doing it through your faith. Guarded through faith. From the human side, faith is the means that activates God's preserving power in our lives. Our our response to faith is to give him him that rightful place and and to trust in him, to have confidence in him. Our, Our response is to recognize how inadequate we are, how weak we are, and how needful we are, and to, by faith... By prayer, ask him and to trust in him. This, this guarding, this guarding is, is what, what God desires for us. And it's ready to be revealed in the last time. The salvation Peter mentions here where he says guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. It's not, it's not a salvation about p- past justification or present sanctification, but about future possession. That, that salvation is about the, the crowning, the, the capstone of your salvation. Working out your salvation with fear and trembling. You are, one day you will see the fullness of your salvation. It will, the curtain will open up and you will see the glory of all of God's salvation. That is what is waiting for you. 
That's, what is, that's what's to encourage you and motivate you when, when you, are, you are struggling. Okay, wait, okay, this, what I'm going through in this life at this moment, this pain I'm feeling, this, okay, this, the pain is real, but the reality is it's temporary. It will not last. It will not last. Ready, ready here, he says, ready to be revealed. Ready. It indicates that, that all that is needed for our full salvation to be accomplished is being there. Again, you have to die. But that's okay. Nothing, nothing needs to be added because this salvation is, is full. It just hasn't all been revealed to us. We don't see it clearly. It's not time for us to see it clearly. Oh, but when it gets revealed, this is a, a few years back. My dad, who is 91 now, um, my dad lives by himself. He still drives like a fighter pilot that he was. He still drives. Um, yeah, be careful when you're in Charlotte. Um, but oh, my dad is a very loving and generous man, and my dad some money and one day when we were in Charlotte just a few years back I walked from my daughter's house which is about three miles to my dad's house to visit with my dad and I and I was you know in my workout clothes and I was sweaty and I didn't have my glasses on and so I sat down and talked with my dad for a while and then I was getting ready to leave to walk back my dad hands me a check and he says here this this is for you um you know I've got I've got some money and I just want to give each of my sons you know some money and I and I opened it up and didn't have my glasses on and I thought oh dad five hundred dollars thank you so much that is so kind of you and I folded up put it in my pocket walked home I got home and um, I took a shower and you know pulled the check out and put my glasses on looked at it and said $5,000. I hadn't seen it in full. <laughs> oh yeah, I was stunned. Oh yeah, dad, thanks. Oh, this, this is amazing. And, and the, the moment when, when you realize there's an extra zero there. <laughs> wow. And, and, and that, that's just, that just barely touches what it's going to be like on that final day for us. Oh, when, when we put the glasses on and the curtain opens up and we see the fullness of our salvation, we as well will be stunned. In the Welsh, Welsh language, I've been to Wales, they speak funny. In the Welsh language, there's a word they, they use. It's called hirath, hirath. And it literally means a longing or a homesickness. And that, that's what Peter is addressing here. There is in every Christian a sense of hereth who await the experiencing of the God's full salvation. And as exiles, at, it can be at times hard for us to, to understand how we're the object of God's affection in the midst of wandering through a, a turbulent and difficult and challenging and hostile world. And we can long for, for what is in the future. And all that we face can, can challenge our, our commitment to living holy lives, especially when we're persecuted for being followers of Christ, for wanting to be holy. And so Peter wisely and he powerfully gives us the purest of hope in these verses. He turns, he turns our gaze back to God. And all who God is and all that God has done. And reminds us of all that God has promised us. This beautiful inheritance. This living hope. This imperishable 
undefiled, unfading inheritance. Peter, Peter wants to stir our affections towards God once again with these words. Listen, the, the remedy to, to heareth is found in looking to Christ. That, that's the remedy. His, his great mercy, our salvation, our living hope, and our faith trusting with great expectation in his promise to keep us safe and secure. Listen, Peter's, Peter's words are meant to energize our sense of expectancy for, for God's wonderful promises yet to be revealed. Without this sense of expectancy, we're going to live, we're going to live weakly. We're going we're gonna to live without faith. We're going to be troubled in our hearts. We're going to have little motivation to remain firm in the midst of our, of our suffering at, and, and our pursuit of holiness. We, we want to be expectant. You, you need to look to this day, this final day. You need to look to this final day for present hope now. Paul, Paul says this in his final letter shortly before he dies in 2 Timothy 4, 6-8 he says this, he says for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race I have kept the faith henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge will award to me on that day and not also only to me but all, also to all who have loved his appearing. Those are, those are crucial words. Loving his appearing. That's what Peter's after here. Brothers and sisters, be expectant and look to his appearing. Father, thank you that you will one day appear. You will one day bring us into the fullness of our salvation. You will one day open the curtain wide that we will see this stunning, beyond description, fullness of all that you have promised, of all that we have inherited in your son, Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, until that day, our prayer is that you would sustain us and we thank you that you are guarding us and keeping in heaven for us our awaited inheritance. Oh Lord, may, may we bring glory to your name as we live expectantly for that day. In Christ's name.